This morning's Bible reading is Acts chapter 17, verse 16 to 31. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day to day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with with this inscription, To an unknown God. So, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I wonder if you've ever been gifted an opportunity to speak about Jesus or the Bible. At work a couple of years ago, I was asked... Do ants go to heaven? To which I replied, funnily funnily that you should pick ants, as they are highly praised in the book of Proverbs as being great planners and diligent workers. The guy was absolutely tickled pink. He thought this was amazing and said, I'm going to go and look that up in a Bible at home. I was thinking, yay, go God, this is amazing. Let's pray before we look at the wonderful opportunity that Paul was given in Athens. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you, that you talk about such amazing things. You talk about ants. That your word has everything we need for life knowledge and love of you and growth into the image of your son. 
Would you use this passage this morning to speak to our hearts, change us, move us, take us deeper into our love for you, and may we grow ever more into the likeness of your Son. In his precious name we pray. Amen. And so we are continuing our series in Acts. And uh, just as a little bit of a recap and where we are, last week Ian took us through some dramatic events in Philippi. There was the release from bondage of the demonized slave girl. And there was the literal release from bondage of Paul and Silas in prison which resulted in the conversion of the jailer and his household. And from Philippi, Paul has now travelled to Thessalonica, where he preached the gospel in synagogues, where he had some success with the Jews and with the Gentiles. But there was jealousy amongst the Jews. There was some fundamentalist zeal. We know all about that, don't we? Which rose up in riots causing Paul to head to Athens by a barrier and another riot. So trouble was following Paul and his mission, and his journeys were never dull. And so we find him now in Athens. And at the time, this was the greatest university town in the world. Men of learning flocked there. And it was a city of many gods, There were more statues of gods there than in the rest of Greece put together. Some said that it was easier to meet a god there than to meet a man. They were morally decadent and spiritually deceived. If any of you have ever looked, uh, walked around the ancient world and looked at statues and, and, and altars, you'll know that they don't always leave much to the imagination. They point to sexual immorality the body being used as a toy. And so all around him, Paul saw idolatry. And the adjective Luke uses is katedolos. And this is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. It's the idea of being under idols, literally swamped with idols. They were beautiful. They were made of stone and brass, gold, silver, ivory, and marble. But Paul was not impressed with them. They did not honor God. And his distress at seeing these idols reflects that Jewish attitude that idols are lifeless objects that lead us away from acknowledging the one true God. If you're interested, you can read in um, Isaiah 40, And 44, scathing talk of these lifeless idols. But Paul turned his distress into something positive and constructive. He witnessed. He shared the good news of Jesus. He called on people to turn from idols to the living God. Give him and the resurrected son, Jesus, the honor due their name. And this episode focuses on Paul's engagement with the Gentiles, particularly of certain philosophical schools. And it's seen as one of the classic set pieces in the whole book of Acts. The new Christian faith meets the tried and tested ancient philosophies. 
And these conditioned how people saw the world, even those who couldn't read or write. He started out in his usual way in the synagogue on the Sabbath, speaking to Jews and other God-fearing people. And then he moved on through the week to the marketplace, the center of public life, speaking to whoever, whoever came his way. And there he met the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. So who were these philosophers? The Epicureans believed that life was all about chance. Death was the end. There was certainly no judgment. The gods were distant. They played no part in the lives of people. And the primary aim of life was to seek happiness and pleasure and avoid pain. The Stoics acknowledged the supreme God, but in a rather confused way. He was seen as being the universe rather than the creator of it. They believed in fate, living in harmony with nature, with a duty to use reason to live a virtuous life, no matter how painful that might be. And we often call somebody stoic, don't we, when they put up with things. They're very forbearing. But Paul would challenge both of these philosophies. He didn't get a friendly invite to the Areopagus. He was contemptuously accused of being a babbler, which is someone picking up a real ragbag, scraps of ideas, and preaching foreign divinities, foreign gods, because he was speaking about Jesus and the resurrection. And some commentators believe that this was due to a misunderstanding because the word for resurrection in Greek, anastasin, was taken to be a female consort to Jesus, anastasis. So they they thought he was preaching about two new gods. So this invitation to the Areopagus, Mars Hill near the Acropolis, here Paul has the platform for the greatest opportunity of his whole ministry, to witness to this world-famous Supreme Council. It had oversight of public morals and jurisdiction over religion in the city. It was quite exclusive. There were only about 30 members of it. But Paul was not daunted. He had a platform in this least receptive and scornful audience of perhaps his whole ministry, missionary journeys. And he addressed this pagan audience, not as he might with the Jews by using the Old Testament. He changed his approach. He established common ground before he introduced biblical concepts. He started, like many speeches started, by praising his audience about how religious they were. And he engaged them by mentioning the altar to an unknown god. A story goes that after an earthquake devastated Athens, people believed that they had upset one of their gods. And to find out which one it was, they had the bright idea of letting sheep loose in the main street. And whichever idol the sheep lay down next to 
would be the one that they had upset. But the sheep didn't play ball. They obviously didn't have a sheepdog. They went off to a field. And the consensus then was that maybe it was a God who was angry at not having an altar. And so to pacify him, they built an altar to an unknown God. Sounds a bit crazy, doesn't it? But this gives Paul a bridge to tell these philosophers about the one true God that they can know and they should know about Jesus, who God raised from the dead and appointed judge of the human race. He can preach the gospel. He can take on the philosophers at their own game. He can preach the gospel in Greek terms. And so he rejects the idea that God is in the temple or in a man-made statue. He tells the good news of the one living creator God who made all, who made the heaven and earth and everything living in it. He deals with the Epicureans and the Stoics, showing that God wants to be known. He calls all to repent, saying that in the past God excused their ignorance. But he has brought this to an end. Jesus has made God known to the world. And all will be called to account at a set time when the appointed man, Jesus, will judge all with justice and everything will be put right. So this God is close to us, not like the remote God of the Epicureans. He wants a relationship with us. And he's not the God of Stoicism, where God and the world are the same thing. But he's a God who created the world, who cannot be restricted or worshipped by that man-made shrine. He's the God who sustains us. He's not dependent on us. We are dependent on him. And he's put in us a longing for him. And a promise that if we reach out and turn from the sin which has alienated us from him, we can find him. And so what is the challenge to us? Idols are not limited to primitive societies. And we often worship man-made things. And we have an opportunity for what I call an idolatry audit together each Sunday as we repent of our sins and we turn to God again. So many things cause us not to love God or others with our whole heart. Anything that distracts and prevents God from being on the throne of our heart, which overtakes our time and our resources and our energy, may be an idol, a God substitute maybe a person or a thing, maybe work, sex, food, alcohol, entertaining ourselves. Income can be spent on chasing contentment and fulfillment, which the Bible teaches is only found in God through Jesus. 
We talk often about the first fruits of our money as we tithe. But what about the first fruits of our time and our attention? Am I the only one who finds their prayer time eaten into by Facebook? I tell the dog he's beautiful and I love him so many times a day. My God is worth so many more I love yous that never get said. Maybe we need to do an idolatry audit every day, not just on a Sunday. And looking outwards, how can we gain people's attention who don't know our God? People are open, just as they were in the first century Athens. People are searching for meaning. Many these days have no knowledge of Jesus or a biblical foundation. But we can be off-putting. When I used to watch EastEnders years ago, I remember a character called Doc Cotton who would quote something and then give a Bible reference straight afterwards, and it was just like, oh, so off-putting. St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. So what opportunities do we have? Where is our marketplace? It could be work or school, the bus, in the doctor's surgery. I've been very aware this week as I'm supporting two different relatives through hospital appointments of my... Um, that I'm carrying Jesus in, what, in, in the very, everything I say and everything I do. I've been very aware of that with two people who don't yet know him. Do we miss any opportunities as it just seems too daunting? We were talking about light and darkness earlier on. And the other day, I bumped into uh, somebody. I'd never met her before. She's on the medical team who co- and covering music festivals, including Reading. And I mentioned the street pastors and uh, how many people that come to our church here are involved in that. And she quite um, unprompted said she was amazed at how people were open to the presence of the street pastors at the Reading Festival. Kirsty talked about it being a dark place when she helped there a couple of years ago. But people are drawn to the light in the darkness. And despite the connectedness of social media, loneliness is an epidemic. Many, even from a young age, are struggling with crippling anxiety and depression. And just this morning, I read that a survey has found that there is less anxiety amongst young people who worship regularly at church. There is peace found in worshipping together the one who made us for himself. This week we have an opportunity in Holiday Club to reach out to those who don't yet yet know him. But what other opportunities might there be to make him known to others this week. I just want to end by going on a little bit further in this passage. Um, 
right to the end of the chapter. We can be all about numbers, can't we, in terms of success in mission. And there's a view that Paul had less success in Athens than anywhere else. Many only wanted to talk. They weren't interested in action or conclusions. But the varying responses to Paul's, to Paul's mission echo the responses that we might have today. There are the scoffers. Have you been mocked for your faith? You're in good company. There are those who delay or want to know more. And we can walk alongside them, invite them to Alpha, invite them to church. But there are those who hear and believe and start a journey of transformation. And in this passage, right at the end of the chapter, there are two converts named Dionysius the the Areopagite. And he was probably one of the intellectual aristocracy of Athens. He was one of a a very small number of people in the Areopagus. And he has been named as possibly the first Athenian Christian bishop and martyr. What an impact that must have had. There's also a woman, Damaris. Now, at the time the position of women in Athens was very, very restricted. And anybody who had been in the marketplace would not have been respectable. And so it's very likely that this woman moved from a place of shame to a place of life. And this shows the power of the gospel to reach men and women from different walks of life. That is an encouragement to us, isn't it? That there's no person of power and influence or person who seems on the margins of society who's beyond God's reach. The marketplace for the gospel can only be restricted by us. We can only imagine the impact that their conversions would have had on their communities. And if you've been here um, for any length of time, you'll have heard several times Paz's testimony and my testimony. And we never never grow tired of sharing our testimony, that moment when things change for us, that moment when somebody gave me a little book which clarified a lot of things for me, that moment when Paz went to a little church in the bush in South Africa. And we are both here today because someone helped us reach out to the one who knows us and wanted us to know him. Who will be in heaven because you helped them to do the same? Amen.